John chapter 5, starting at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness of the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And this is God's word. Well, how about we pray first and then we look at uh, this passage before us this evening. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty Lord, we pray as we meet as your people and we congregate around your holy, inerrant and life-giving word. We pray that you guide us this evening in spirit and in truth. And may you reveal to us uh, the rich riches of your word uh, as we sit here tonight under it. We pray this in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, uh, his name. Amen. Well, we're looking this evening at the latter part uh, of John 5 with particular focus on those latter verses from around 44 and the verses that surround it. But it'll be helpful to do a quick overview of what has led us where, uh, to where we are tonight. Now what immediately precedes this passage this evening is a miracle, a miracle performed by Christ, and a miracle, brethren, of a destitute man who, it tells us, has been an invalid for 38 years. And we get this glimpse, this glimpse into the amazing insight of the gospel here. The Lord briefly has this conversation with this man and he asks him, do you want to be healed? The man responds, he has no one to help him. And Jesus responds incredibly. And again, giving us this gospel insight where he simply says, get up and walk. And this 38-year invalid, this man who has been heavily disabled, gets up and walks. He's immediately healed. We then move on, we have these interactions with these Jewish leaders that so much of this passage this evening revolves around, who have heard of this wonderful miracle, but instead of having joy in that miracle, instead of having some belief or being amazed at what has happened to this known invalid, what do they do? They seek for ways to persecute Jesus. 
They seek for ways to persecute him under the guise of him healing on the Sabbath. We then have this really, truly amazing bit of dialogue from Jesus where he quite clearly affirms and states and puts forward his divinity. And then our greater passage this evening where Jesus really takes these Pharisees, these religious leaders to task. And he questions why they lack belief. He questions why with all of this testimony, all of this scripture of old, all of these prophets from Moses onward, why do they lack belief? Why do they not seek the glory that comes from the only God? They reject in spite of all the evidence, a multitude, a whole host of witnesses, all of whom attest to the coming Christ who now stands there literally before them. And brethren, their misplaced seeking of glory, their misplaced distortion of glory is hindering all belief for these leaders. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. It's almost here as if Jesus starts building a case. It's almost here as if he starts going on the defensive a little. We know elsewhere when he's dealing with these Jewish scribes and Pharisees, he employs other tactics. He often employs the tactic of silence. He doesn't directly answer them. He may use riddles. But here in John 5, it's almost like he's defending his own claims to his deity before these Jewish rulers. And like a good defence lawyer, he starts building his case. At first he mentions John the Baptist in verses 30 to 34, since the rulers had acknowledged John's authority as this prophet-like figure, and as John had borne witness about Jesus being the Messiah. And then as Jesus moved forward, he pointed to the authority of his miracles, the testimony that those miracles gave, some of which were public knowledge, as one of the Pharisees' own Nicodemus had admitted back in chapter 3 of this very book, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then after presenting his first two witnesses, and with his defence developing, he brings forth his star witness, the witness of God through his own word. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And so it's the testimony of scripture that provides Jesus' most powerful evidence. And Jesus uses the fact these religious leaders acknowledge the high, high authority of Scripture directly against them. You search the Scriptures, Jesus says, but they bear witness about me. That was their noblest claim. And so by appealing to the authority of Scripture, Jesus is exerting the greatest leverage possible in their courtroom. Now, brethren, likewise, an appeal to Scripture should be our main approach with persuading people today because it's his word that God uses to exert his saving power through the Holy Spirit. And time and time again, the most devoted unbelievers have been brought to faith by searching the Scriptures. And, brethren, I'm sure for many of you, you could think of examples of this occurring in maybe lives of people you know or have read about. And while I was putting this sermon together, it made me think about a testimony I read only recently about a Muslim apologist. And uh, he decided in this narrative, he was telling 
to search the scriptures. His plan was to read from the beginning through to the end of the, like the English-speaking Bible in the hope of somehow cracking the code and being a better Muslim evangelist. But as he read what he found after he went through the Old Testament and went into the New, these claims, these claims were all fulfilled. And what ended up happening? He ended up becoming a Christian. He was converted. Now this, this of course, should raise the question, why doesn't this happen to everyone who reads the Scriptures? Here we have these scribes and Pharisees. Jesus admits they searched the Holy Word. These men would have known that Old Testament exceptionally well. So then why didn't they accept him in faith? And that's an important question for us because it shows us that studying the Bible doesn't necessarily profit us for salvation. It matters, brethren. It matters how and why we approach the scriptures. And so having brought forward the Bible as a star witness, Jesus goes on in this passage to explain why these scholars miss this message. And he gives three reasons to us, beginning with the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees towards the scriptures. They exalted biblical knowledge, yes, but only as an end in itself. That was the attitude that stood in their way between them and a saving faith. Jesus says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, it tells us in verse 39. Now see, they were not seeking the message of the scriptures, And with that in mind, the Jews, we know the Jews what they were like. They were practically obsessed with the scriptures. And yet they failed to attend to the message contained within. Now, brethren, this can still be something we are prone to do today. We have to be careful. We have to guard ourselves from being those who make a big show of their Bibles. And even among some who study the Bible daily, for them the power of the Bible is just in its mere possession or its display in the mere exercise of reading as if it's some kind of magical lucky charm. I think if we really admit it, all of us can fall prey to this attitude at times. Don't you agree, brethren? Have you ever found yourself slipping into this behaviour from time to time? We might set aside a bit of time through the day to study God's word, which of course is a wonderful thing, but then it can become simply another task, another chore. And if somebody were to meet us, maybe after doing our devotion, drinking our coffee and heading out to the car as we're unlocking the car and they said, oh, did you just do your your morning worship? What were you reading this morning? What was exciting about what you read? What did you learn about God? How often would we say, oh, hang on, I have to think about that. How often do we not get excited by this holy word that we we are privy to each and every day? We can set aside 10 minutes of Bible reading And then we think, well, we've accomplished that. It's done for the day. And you see, that's the wrong attitude, brethren. That's the wrong way to engage with Scripture. Um, Our attitude should not be mechanical, but it so often can be. It would be the equivalent of standing, standing at a house, maybe Oceanside, with beautiful glass windows, looking out, you know, spectacular sunset, those vast colours bleeding into each other, maybe the light burning through. And yet, after it, you reflect on, well, those, those windows were nice. And yet, that's what we can do, brethren. That's what we're prone to do in our sinfulness. The Bible is a window. The purpose of the Bible is that you may look through it and see Jesus Christ. The Bible is not a thing just to be analysed, criticised, outlined and examined just for its own sake. No. That window allows us to see the beauty that lies beyond. 
The Bible is the way to life in Christ. And that's the first reason why they, though they studied the scriptures in such great depth, did not believe in Jesus. Now, the second reason the Pharisees and scribes missed the message of the scriptures has to do with their interests. They were not interested in the things the Bible really talks about. They were interested in worldly things. Another thing we can be so prone to uh, sharing and being familiar with these religious teachers. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You see, brethren, if Jesus had come announcing the kind of earthly agenda that these religious leaders were interested in, and mainly in that day it would have been the national pride overcoming the oppression of the Romans, well, maybe if he'd done that, they would have appreciated him. And especially if Jesus, maybe if he'd come in his own name on the basis of worldly credentials, you know, maybe a degree from the school of the scribes or the recommendation of some great Pharisee, maybe that... Maybe that would be the thing and the kind of person that they could do business with. And if you read early Jewish history around this time, you read Josephus and other early Jewish historians, you will see examples of this, this very thing. And there's even Jewish religious leaders supporting false messiahs and even revolts occurring with Pharisee support. But the most telling thing is Jesus' statement where he basically is stating, I know you do not have the love of God within you, you're not interested in the things the Bible's talking about. You're interested in your own things. You're interested in a worldly agenda. You want me to come in my own name according to the things that you understand. And moreover, the love of God is not seen within you. You see, brethren, what the Holy Spirit wants us to be interested in is God's love for us in Christ and that our love for him and for others. James Boyce, the uh, Bible commentator, comments here, they didn't really love God. What they loved was their idea about him. And this shows us a scriptural test of any religious leader or even modern-day preacher is whether or not he reveals and shows the love of God to others. Paul says in 1 Timothy, when writing and instructing the pastoral letter, 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So not only, brethren, was the Pharisee message devoid of God's love for man, but their worldly agenda ministered no love to any others, and we see this especially in John 5. How did this all start, brethren? Their lack of concern for the wondrous, wonderful healing act of a man who had been suffering for the majority of his life. They had no love for him at all. Merely their power. They had an, their own agenda to maintain. And so for this reason, because of their interests and as well as their attitude, all their studying of the Bible did not produce faith. But thirdly, Jesus points out probably the biggest problem, their motive. They search the scriptures in order to be exalted by men. Verse 44, how can you believe When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You see, brethren, here's the ultimate reason for their wrong attitude to scripture and ultimately for their refusal to receive and believe in Jesus. They cherish glory from men, not from God. Meditate on that one a bit. Think on that a bit. 
Think about yourself. Think about your family. Think about your friends, churches you know, your own church. Do they cherish glory from men or from God? And that message doesn't change. That is the message Jesus had for his, has for his bride today in the year of our Lord, 2024. That is not the message of the Holy Scriptures, you see. Here's a warning that all of us need. And let me say how much more important this warning becomes as we increase in our knowledge of Scripture. We don't want to fall into the trap of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. If the study of Scripture becomes a means to gain fame or to show off one's intellectual prowess, might, well, then it becomes an idol. Then we've gone wrong. And there are church history stories full of examples like this. It doesn't take too long to read a church history textbook to run across examples. Men being given prominence and position. Men being given high titles in the church and yet fruitless, they were lost. Men gaining earthly glory in the name of the gospel and dressing in attire to be recognised for their smarts and yet it was fruitless, they were lost. Jesus says why. Their prideful moments keep them from Christ. Well, how different, brethren, was Jesus' ministry to this? He says in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. And so here's another test for any gospel minister. Indeed, any servant of Christ. Brethren, are we willing to be scorned by the world? Are we willing to be hated by men? if that's what it means, in order to receive that glory, that praise through God. And I hope you realise, brethren, that's the norm. It certainly is the case today if you're proclaiming the true gospel, even from within much of the church itself. Brethren, any minister, any church, any Christian committed to do God's work in God's way, for God's glory, by his power alone, they're not going to be hailed and championed by the world. They're not going to be on the covers of magazines or getting positive attention from any mainstream media. Straight away, no. John 15, the world will hate you. And why? Because it hated him first. You're going to be scorned and criticised. You're going to be called names, outdated, not with it. You must be prepared for that today. The scorn of even professing Christians and professing churches in many cases. But you see, those who desire God's glory, let that be our motive, that we, that I, would serve God. We would have his praise at the end. We'll have our greatest reward, the salvation of our souls through faith in Jesus Christ and the place where only true glory can be found, brothers and sisters. Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, Jesus' own words. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that the names, your names, are written in heaven. We want the praise of God. And so Jesus pointed out the result of missing the message of the Bible because they had a wrong attitude. They had worldly interest. They had a self-serving motive and it had this dreadful effect. But brethren, verse 40, where is true glory? Verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's where our gaze should be. Him. That's where the only glory we should be thinking about receiving comes from. When Jesus spoke of the scriptures, of course, he means the Old Testament. 
The New Testament was in being in the process of being lived out. It wasn't yet written. And it's the Old Testament scriptures that he says in verse 39, bear witness about him. That's how Jesus describes the Old Testament. And so that should raise the question, well, how is that? Well, we quickly go to one of his post-resurrection appearances. Jesus is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, appearing to two downcast disciples on the Emmaus Road. They'd witnessed the crucifixion. They were leaving Jerusalem in what can only be read as despair. And Jesus came upon them. They didn't recognise him and he didn't reveal who he was. And he began talking to them. And he pointed out to them in conversation that the death and resurrection of the Messiah was foretold in the scriptures. And Jesus went on in Luke 24 to give a mini course in the message of God's word. Here's what he says. Luke records, starting at verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now notice, brethren, the emphasis that Jesus puts here. All the scriptures, all the Old Testament. And who, brethren? About himself, about him. And that is what these scribes, these Pharisees, these religious leaders were missing. Because you see, that's the chief message of the Old Testament, is the person and work of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And Jesus taught them, not just an occasional verse here and there predicts his coming or foretells him. No, the message of all scripture concerns him. And brethren, that of course raises another question. How is Christ spoken of in the Old Testament? Well, you could do a seminary course on this very subject, I'm sure. But I think one way to organise and break up the Old Testament witness to Christ can be broken into three different subsections. Prophecies, types and ceremonies. Now, first, the Old Old Testament contains a whole host of prophecies that find their fulfilment in Jesus. Some have to do with the details of his life. We know some of those famous ones. Isaiah 7.14, that he'd be born, born by a virgin. Micah 5.2, he would be in the town of Bethlehem. And then you have specific prophecies about Jesus' ministry. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Then you have the greatest amount of prophecy concerning the death of Jesus, which these teachers would have known about. Of course they would. And even today, brethren, what a witness to the truthfulness of the coming of Christ and his claims of divinity. And it's hilarious when you meditate upon, when you think on modern day sceptics and scholars and their claims that there just isn't enough proof. There isn't any, any enough of, of messages or any fundamental, there's not enough to have a fundamental belief or trust in this man. As if they had some complex conspiracy, as if since the first word of scripture was penned to the last, this select group of men somehow formed over generations and thousands of years this, this committee to kind of come up with this conjured lie. And for what reason? To be martyred? To be called fools? Well, let me give you some quick references, brethren. This was enjoyable to do. Zechariah 11.12, he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah 53.7, he would be beaten, tortured, but didn't utter a word. That was pure coincidence that you read that. Isaiah 56, he would be mocked, beaten and spat upon. Zechariah 12.10, that he would be pierced and his people would mourn. Psalm 22.16, that they would pierce his hands and feet. And the verse directly before, they would divide his garments among them, casting lots for his clothing. 
Psalm 69, 21, that he would be given gall or sour wine to drink. Psalm 34, 20, he keeps all his bones, amazingly, considering what he underwent. Not one of them is broken. Isaiah 53, 9, although he had done no violence and no deceit came out of his mouth, he would die like the wicked and be buried in a rich man's grave. And there's more, brethren. It goes on and on. But then beyond all those of the Old Testament also has a whole host of passages relating to the significance of Jesus' death. And we should all know the servant songs in Isaiah, culminating in chapter 53. We can see a whole host of prophecies concerning Christ. But the Old Testament also teaches about types regarding the coming Messiah. Another great scholar, Sinclair Ferguson, describes these types as persons, institutions, even events that typify something about Jesus Christ. Moses, brethren, was a type of Christ as our deliverer from bondage. David was a type of Christ as that faithful king, that shepherd, that warrior. Solomon typified Jesus' reign of peace and glory. The conquest of Jericho was a type of conquest, Jesus' conquest over Satan. The tabernacle and the temple, think about that, that building. That was a type of God's dwelling with his people through Christ. And you see how important it becomes. You see how you could overlook and miss the message regarding the Old Testament. It's so easy, even today, brethren, even this side of the crucifixion. It's so easy to reduce these wonderful passages down to a book of moral fables or just some interesting history lessons. I'm sure we've all heard people, especially for some reason when teaching children, teach from the Old Testament and drill it all down to something like, this is why God wants you to be good boys and girls. Brethren, that's tragic. That's how easy, though, it is to miss the point, just like these religious leaders do. These examples show us not what we're to do, but what Christ will do and what Christ has now done. We must show from the Old Testament and the types, not moral stories or fables, not just interesting history, but the person and work of the Messiah who would come now. Lastly, we have these ceremonies that point to Christ. And his reconciliation for his people. These should come to mind hopefully quite quickly. We think of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. We think of every detail of the Day of Atonement and how huge the significance is pointing forward. Clean garments, those spotless animals, the scapegoat, the sacrifice, the blood, what's done with the blood, the Holy of Holies, the Ark, the tablets, the stones on the garments, the mercy seat. It's all pointing forward to Christ. It's preaching the gospel in the Old Testament. Now, brethren, these are the ways in which we see Christ, many of which in the Old Testament, and we could keep going on. But Jesus himself on this occasion in John 5, he focuses and appeals to the witness of Moses. And why? Because the Jewish leaders particularly revered Moses. He says in verse 45, Don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe these things, how will you believe my words? Now, of course, the five books of Moses, known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, are filled with Christ, filled with prophecies of Christ. Types, they point forward, all the way beginning back at creation and the fall, with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph. And then Moses himself. And most of these people themselves are either types of Christ or typify something of Christ or point forward to Christ in some way. 
The ceremonies of the law given, I talked about, were all given by God through Moses. And that the scribes and Pharisees would happily appeal to Moses. How ironic. And yet so fail to comprehend the direct witness to Christ is nothing less than condemning. That's why Moses himself, that whose name they most prize, Jesus says, he condemns you through the law. That Moses, which judges their sin and the gospel that he promised, which they were refusing by rejecting Jesus. Moses, above all, accuses these Old Testament scholars. And that same law accuses each of us today. Unless, as Jesus says in verse 40, you come to me. See, we're in their shoes, brethren. It's not just that they happen to exalt Moses. Moses will accuse us all. And why? Because the law accuses us. And the preaching of the gospel in a similar way, unless Jesus says, you come to me, that you may have life. You come to me for that. It's easy, brethren, to look down on these religious leaders, to look down on these scribes and Pharisees. Isn't it easy to do that? But rather, what we should should do is confess our own sins. We should do a self-analysis, our own guilt, and come to Christ to be saved by the gospel. For that is the only place where true glory, where eternal and unending glory can be found. Well, Jesus begin, began his final portion of his defence before these Jewish leaders with words which you commend. He says, you search the scriptures. And of course, again, that's a good thing in of itself. The wrong attitude of the religious elite in his day should not keep us from doing that at all. We should study the scriptures, but we need to do so in a way that's right and in order to possess Christ by faith. Let me look, therefore, at some applications about how we may profit Again, James Montgomery Boyce on this passage states, We need a real desire to be instructed by the scripture and to submit our sentiments and our practices to be controlled and directed by what the scripture teaches and what we read there. And so we must study the scriptures with sincerity. What a great statement. We need to come sincerely with a real willingness to be taught on our knees to say, Lord, your servant hears. To sit at the feet of Jesus to be taught. That's how we must come, with a teachable spirit. The great Brit, Charles Simeon, says, Desiring to learn the will and mind of God and determining through grace to obey God's word in every way so that we receive implicitly whatever God declares, obeying without reservation whatever he commands, that's how we come sincerely. Brethren, we also need to study the word. Study the word with diligence. We need to be like miners seeking treasure by digging with might, by keeping repeating over and over, examining our finds. Brethren, a casual stroll, a brief stroll through the scriptures is of little use. And that's not to discourage daily reading or Bible reading plans, but brethren, the way to little faith is to exert little effort in the scriptures. We also don't want to be like those religious leaders in our passage tonight, knowing the scriptures so well but missing the treasure that is right before them and us. Noel Weeks once preached at Reesby when we were there, and he commented that the Christian whose life is strongly influenced by God's word are not those who do their five minutes of prayer and hurried devotion, but those who hunger, who hunger for a passion for that divine truth and who come with all of themselves to scripture, who talk about it, who meditate upon it, who want to know more, they can never be satisfied and devote themselves to the word of God. 
and then they realise its dignity and worth and its call for passion, something active on our part. These are the people who are growing in the Lord, people who approach the Bible saying with David in Psalm 25, verse 4, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. So, brethren, we must come sincerely. We must come to the word diligently. And we must approach the scriptures with humility, humbling ourselves. The right way to come to the Bible is as one who is aware of his or her many sins and failings, of our weakness that needs strength, of our folly that desires true wisdom. How often we have a tendency to error. We are sinful beings that need mortification and pruning. Are you aware of that, brethren? How greatly you need to be taught the Bible? I've heard people comment, why go to church twice on a Sunday? Or once you've read the whole Bible through, Isn't that enough? Haven't you read it enough? The answer is no, brethren. That misses the point. That denies our weakness, our fleshliness, our own fallenness, our sinfulness and helplessness. I'm a foolish man. I need wisdom every single day until I breathe my last because I'm prone to spiritual death. Like Calvin and Knox often used to state, our hearts, and mine is too, Nothing but an idol factory. I need life. I'm influenced by the world. I need the voice of heaven every single day. Brethren, how greatly do we need the Bible? How greatly do we need to read and reread and to truly feed on and savour that holy inerrant word? To feed on Christ himself. Let's come humbly. Let us aim at a humble spirit, brethren. Let us reflect much on the majesty and awesomeness of the God we serve. Let us adorn his goodness in favouring us with a revelation of his will. Let us study to know ourselves and the depths of our own depravity, our sinfulness and ignorance. Then we shall no longer read the scriptures with indifference, but with the greatest reverence and attention. The longest psalm contained in the Bible, Psalm 119, verse 18. David, the man after God's own heart, prayed thus, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. John Calvin also comments that our goal and prayer when reading scripture, when reading the holy word, should be to please God and accomplish his ends for his glory, not for ours, that he may very graciously grant us a true understanding of his words. Brethren, no master of the divine words exists except the author of these words. And then all of this concludes with why we must study the word and do so, so as to not fall into the trap of the hypocrisy of these religious leaders from our passage in John tonight. We must study the word so we know the word. Brethren, we must open scripture with the aim and purpose for which they were given by God, that we would know Christ, that window that we would know the Lord Jesus. It's not just to gain knowledge. It's not to get credibility or be puffed up before men. Not to gain lifestyle tips or tips for success, as some would preach from a pulpit on a Sunday. No. Let us come to the Bible with the heart that Paul bought in Philippians 3. 
He says, all I want to know is Christ and to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and become like him in death in the hope that I myself will be raised from death to life. And then Jesus' own sweet, sweet words, John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Brethren, Jesus warned the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. You refuse to come to me that you have life. Knowledge is nothing in the grand scheme of things. Knowledge means absolutely nothing without a divine faith. So brethren, where are you? Only you and God truly know. John 5:44 from our passage tonight, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, brethren, let us make sure we come to know Christ. And if you don't, or if you are like these religious leaders in our passage this evening, never coming truly to Jesus, never having believed on Christ and his gospel, even if you've been sitting here at Smithfield under the word for years, then cry out to him. Come to him as Lord Jesus himself states. Matthew 7, 7, one of the most known passages. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Come, brethren, let us know. Let us come to know Christ in his word. And as our passage in verse 44 states this evening, seek the glory that comes from the only God. Let's pray.